0: Amen. You may be seated. The Lord truly has poured out blessings upon us. If your pantry is anything like mine, there is not room enough to receive it. Overflowing, especially when you come back from Costco. We are so blessed. We are so blessed. In light of that, I wanted to tell you that um, over the academy, the, the concrete is going to be poured, Lord willing, this week. The plumbing is installed. Electricians are at work. And I encourage you to, to follow what that, that song just says. Continue to tithe and be faithful stewards of all that the Lord blesses you with. Uh, the plumbing does cost $200,000. Yes, indeed. It is more expensive than concrete, more expensive than steel, more expensive than many things. And, um, but the Lord has given us that money. He's blessed us with that money. We're going to need to raise a little bit of extra money, but I'm not concerned. If we tithe, He will bless us, and He will um, equip us for whatever calling He has called us to. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, we've been looking at a tragedy in the life of King David. It's not a tragedy that many people are familiar with. You may or may not have known that King David... Had his wives and his children kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. In fact, it wasn't just David's family, it was all the families of the whole community. It's a major tragedy in the life of David. And we're looking at this particular tragedy and how he faces it so that we can gather principles on how to stay in trial and how to suffer trial ourselves. Amen? Many of you are going through trial. I don't need to name names, but you know there are people in our congregation that are suffering great trials right now. And all of us, if we are disciples of Jesus, will one day go through a trial. It is the way God has designed our discipleship program. And so whether you're in trial now or going to be in trial later, I want this sermon series to help you to handle it well as a wise and godly Christian. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would bless your people by your word. Equip us for the afflictions and trials that you have ordained for us to walk through. And I pray, Father, that this word, if and when it is heard by those within our church who are suffering trial, that they would be edified, that they would be equipped to hold on tighter to you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. Let me read our text for us. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag, that's where their families were staying, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. It's hard to imagine something so difficult. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters, as you can imagine. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, David wrote Psalm 69 in this context, during this particular trial and struggle. And so when we read Psalm 69 and... After the sermon, we're going to sing Psalm 69. I want you to see that we are getting a window into the very heart of King David. We look at each other and we don't exactly know what's going on in each other's hearts. But if we could get a hold of each other's prayer journals, we'd have some idea. Well, we have the prayer journal of David when he goes through this trial. And so we can learn from David how to process the pain, how to pray for the pain, And what he was struggling with. And so I want to read a few excerpts from Psalm 69. This is David in a trial. Psalm 69.1. Notice what he says. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. He's got no refuge. He has no comfort. He has no handles on the situation. No foothold. He's slipping deeper and deeper in. I have come into deep waters And the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. But he's not only in a trial. He's on trial. Which makes the trial even worse. Look at verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies, what I did not steal, referring to the women and the children, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So you can see, David's in a trial. He's on trial. And yet our text says, at the very end of it, yet David strengthened himself in the Lord. That's the expression I want to to unpack. I want to know what it looks like when you're in a trial... To strengthen yourself in the Lord. How do you suffer in the Lord? That's what I want to know. That's what this whole sermon series is about. Last week we saw that one of the main things to realize is that all suffering, all of our trials, are sovereignly dealt to us by the hand of God. It's important to realize that you are not spinning out in space alone. You, you are not under the power of the devil. Whatever the devil might do to you, remember, he is God's devil. God is ultimately sovereign. We can say with Job, the Lord gives. Who gives? And the Lord takes away. Who takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Although we know it was the devil who was afflicting Job. So God does use the devil and God uses people. He raises up, we learned last week, he raises up haters to, um, to wean us off of our addiction to the praises of men. Right? You love the praises of men, God sends you men to hate you. Because when you find men hating you, it helps you to not be so addicted to men praising you. That's one of the many reasons why God raises up haters in your life, persecutors. But ultimately, who is it? It is God. Ultimately, we must say with John Calvin, the Lord bruises us, yet it is enough for us to know it is his hand. Amen? But this week, I want to uh, turn the page a little bit and ask, how do we pray in the midst Of pain. David strengthened himself in the Lord, right? He had his theology right. He understood that God is sovereign. He had all of that right. He knew the Amalekites were evil. He knew they were satanically possessed, all of that. He knew it was from the Lord. But then he went to the Lord in prayer. How does he pray? I want to learn how to pray in the midst of pain. You ready? All right, well, let's begin. First of all, we know that David is open. That's the first principle. You have it in your little notes there that I sent you by email. The first thing is that if you're going to go to the Lord in the midst of pain, you have to be entirely open. All right, say that with me. What do we need to be? Open, open, vulnerable, exposed. If God is holding a scalpel, we must lay on the table and not wiggle at all. If he's got a bow and arrow, we must take off the armor. We must be fully open and exposed before the Lord, totally vulnerable, hiding nothing from him. Amen? You know, John Calvin, a great hero of the faith, he was once facing down an angry mob, an angry mob, and they were chanting for his death. John Calvin responded by walking into the midst of the crowd. He was a frail and sickly little man, very skinny and always sick. There was times he was so sick he asked the Lord to remove his calling and let him go to heaven. That's how sick he was and how much he suffered. And he went into the midst of this crowd and he opened up his shirt to expose his heart. And he said something to the effect of, if you want my life, it's yours. That's the posture we must have before the Lord in prayer. Lord, if you want my heart, if you want to pierce it with arrows, I'm wearing no armor. Pierce away. If you want my throat, my throat is yours. If you want my family, my family is yours. If you want my life, my life is yours. If you want my reputation, my reputation is yours. If you want my money, my money is yours. You want my career, you want my future, you want my health, you want my peace, you want my comfort. It's all yours. This trial is in your hands, it is from your hand, that's all I need to know. And I am open, fully exposed to whatever you would like to do with it. Openness before the Lord. And you can see that with David in Psalm 69. He is so open before the Lord, hiding nothing, holding nothing back. Amen, Christ Church? Listen, God may be speaking to you through this frowning providence. But if you're not open, you're not going to hear it. If you have negotiables, if you have parts of your life which are hidden from his view, you're not going to hear it. God may be training you up for a great calling. But if you're not open, you're not going to have the sense of the purpose in the pain. He may be disciplining you for a besetting sin. But if you're not open, it's going to take a long time to catch on. He may be training you so you don't fall into a sin. But if you're not open, it may take a long time. We must be purely and open before the Lord. We must say to him, Lord, you are the one bruising me. Have your way with me. If you want my life, it is yours. And one of the ways we open up before the Lord is to confess our sins. Look at Psalm 69, verse 5. This is what David says. He says, and he's fully open with the Lord. Oh, God, you know my folly. I don't need to stay a long time in prayer listening to you all my follies. You know my folly. Now, we don't know particularly what folly David's referring to. You know, know, oh, God, the wrongs I have done. They're not hidden from you. See, when you go through pain, it's important to be open with God in all of life. Do you want my life to go this way? Do you want my life to go that way? Do you want to afflict me in this way? I'm open to it. But also, it's very important to be open with your sins, to confess your sins before him. Lord, you know my folly. You know my foolishness. And you know my sins. Your accusers may not know your sins, right? You may be innocent of all charges, but God knows your sins. And those are the ones you must confess before him, even... Take in into consideration that there are sins you are not aware of. So that you would say with David, what does he say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me. That's what he prayed in the midst of trial. We have to open up to the Lord. We have to confess our sins, even though we are going through it. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, though, how can I know that I can trust him with my life? with my future, with my family, with my money, my career? How can I know I can trust Him? How can I open up my heart to Him? And You know the answer, Christ Church, don't you? He did it first. right? He initiated this open relationship. He initiated this, this love, this faithfulness. He initiated the covenant that we are in. All we do is reciprocate. He opened up His arms before us and died on the cross. We respond with opening up our lives for Him. Amen? But there's more, and this one might be a little bit more complicated. If you would, look at Psalm 69, verse 13. You're not only open before him, willing to receive from his hand, whatever it may be, opening and confessing your sins to him, but you're also remembering and renewing the relationship that you have with him. Okay? Look at Psalm 69, verse 13, and let me see if I can explain what I mean here. But as for me... My prayer is to you, O Lord. Now you see that word Lord there. Most of you probably know this. It's four capital letters. Does everyone see that? Would you nod your head? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is how the translators indicate to us that this is Yahweh, his covenantal name. So think with me. This is not easy to understand. This is in David's worldview, but it's not in our worldview. So it's not easy to understand. But when he's going through the pain, he cries out in prayer to Yahweh, the name that God revealed to him when he made a covenant with him. He's praying in response to his covenantal relationship that he has with the Lord. All right. In other words, who here believes that you're in a relationship with God? You're in a relationship, amen? All right. Now everyone's in a relationship with God to some degree. It could be a bad relationship or it could be a good relationship. But if you're in a good relationship with God, that relationship is not just emotions. It's not just sentiment. It's not just affections, though he has affection for you. Though he is moved by you and he he loves you. There is a structure to this relationship, like a marriage. Do you love your wife? Yes. Do you have heartfelt emotions for her? Yes. But there is a structure to the relationship. It involves vows. It involves terms of faithfulness. It involves blessings and cursings if you're not faithful. You see, you're in a marriage covenant. Does everyone see that? You could say to your wife, you know, this isn't just a marriage. This is a relationship. Well, that's not a helpful thing to say because the relationship that you are in has rules, doesn't it? Terms and conditions because it is a covenantal relationship. If a child appeals to a father to save him to help him, to train him, to educate him. He's not just appealing to the father's affection in his heart, though the father has affection for his child, right? He is also appealing to the fact that the father has a duty, has a responsibility being the father, So this is why when we are in suffering, we go to God not just as the one who loves us. Yes, as the one who loves us, has affection for us, who cares for us deeply. We are emotionally attached to him and intimate with him. But we also must be aware that our relationship with him has structure to it. It is a covenantal relationship. And he has responsibilities, and we have responsibilities, and he's made promises, and we have to fulfill our side of the bargain. And that's what David means. That's in his worldview when he says, I'm coming to you, O Yahweh. Right? He's not coming to him as a lucky charm or as a friend. Right? He's coming to him as the covenantal Lord, appealing to the particular covenantal terms. In other words, he says, I'm praying that you would be faithful to the terms and conditions of the relationship that we are in. You can look at it very closely, 69 verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your, say that word with me, steadfast. That's the closest English word we have to what I'm talking about here. It is hesed. It is covenantal love. According to your steadfast love, answer me, in your saving, say that, faithfulness. When you say to a husband, thank you for being faithful, you don't just mean thank you for loving me, thank you for having strong feelings for me, thank you for thinking that I'm beautiful. You mean thank you for keeping your side of the covenant. Thank you for being faithful. That's what the word faithful means. You only have faithfulness if there are terms and conditions to which to be faithful. David understands this. We've lost this in our world, and I'm trying to draw it out for you so that you can see it. Because it is so very important when you are in pain and you're in trial that you realize you are under the covenantal love of God. And there are promises. There are promises. There are terms. There are responsibilities that he has for you in that trial and in that pain. So when God seems far from you, you go to him in prayer and you say, I come to you, O Yahweh, the one who is faithful, the one who is steadfast. You seem far to me, but I know you're faithful, and so I know you're not far from me. When, he feels, when it feels as though he is bruising you, you know, as every good father does, he spanks us. Amen? He trains us. He, Like a good coach, he makes us run suicide sometimes. You know, and you know, I've prayed that he would let me out of boot camp before. But sometimes you're in boot camp with God. But you pray, I know you're faithful. I know you'll keep me. I know you'll keep all your promises for me. So that's exactly what David's going to do. He's going to petition the Lord on the basis of those covenantal promises. Look at Psalm 69 verse 6. And this is the third thing we're learning. When we go to him, we are open before him. But we remember and we renew our commitment to our relationship with him. And he does the same for us. And then we petition him according to that relationship. Psalm 69, verse 6. He says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Now what he's praying for here is that he would not be stoned to death. You'll remember from our text that he was under trial. They were considering stoning him. Now to be stoned is a curse. The curse is on the ground and the stones of the ground are piled upon you and you are killed as a cursed one, condemned. The same is true of the cross. Jesus was cursed hanging on a tree. And David is saying... For the sake of your church. He cares about the church more than anything. right? That's called the esprit de corps of the Christian life. You care about what your life has to say and do with the rest of the church. He says, for the sake of the church. Don't let them stone me. Don't let them dishonor me. Honor me. Give me some honor. Vindicate me. Don't put me to shame for the sake of your church. Why does he think God would care about the name and the honor of his church, because God promises to exalt His church. Why would he think that God would care about his reputation and His honor? Because God promises in His covenant to honor Him. All right, let's look at it. It's in First Samuel chapter 2 verse 30, real clear, and we could go to many passages in Scripture to see this, but look at First Samuel 2:30. The Lord declares, "Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor." You see that David is appealing to this promise, which is mentioned here and in many other places. There's also a negative side to this. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. But God promises to honor his people. Da- Daniel says that the people of God will one day shine as the stars of heaven. Isn't that something that when this mortality puts on immortality on the last day? When the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise up, and those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Who knows that passage? The whole world, at that point in time, will see all the church exalted above everyone. And it will be in that day, that glorious day, that the Bible calls the full adoption of the sons of God, that the church will be vindicated of all charges. It is on that day which the meek shall inherit and the lowly and the humble shall be exalted and the last shall be first and God will honor those who honor him. His prophets, his preachers, his people for thousands of years have been thrown in cisterns and sawn in two and shamed and maligned and marginalized. They will be exalted and honored above the whole earth. The martyrs who were dug up from their graves and then placed on piles of dung for public shame, they will be raised up and exalted into the heavens. They will shine like stars. All the slanders of the devil will be turned around on him. All the accusations will be turned on him, for the people of God will be exalted, honored, glorified. You know, I was reading about a faithful saint named Oliver Cromwell this week. And after he died... Um, His uh, enemies, uh, King Charles II, a tyrant and bloody murderer of Christians, he dug Oliver Cromwell and his mother and his children and his family members, dug them up out of the ground at Westminster Abbey, and they had their bodies paraded through the streets of London and hanged on gallows publicly. Then their bodies were taken down and their heads were chopped off, And their bodies were buried under the gallows to curse them and shame them and to make a lesson for all those who would resist King Charles's tyranny. And then his head and all of the heads of his family were put on stakes in the middle of the city as shame, criminals, insurrectionists, blasphemous, just like their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was. But the Bible tells us that one day, Oliver and his family will rise up from underneath that hangman's gallows. Actually, they were moved to Cambridge later. But they will be raised up. And King Charles will be brought low. This is a part of the story of history. This is a part of our birthright. These are covenantal promises. What does he say to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make of you a great name. This is a part of what it means to be a Christian. However... That full and total inheritance is not received until the last day. You see? There will one day come a time when the days of humiliation will be over and we will experience total and ultimate glory. But that day is not yet. Right? But we can ask him for a little bit of it. See, this is what I want you to understand. The glory is yours by birthright. It is your inheritance. It is a promise. And you as a little heir can ask for a little bit of it in this life. Now he may say to you, now's not the right time. You're not ready for it. But he might grant your petition. But you see how David is asking for honor. Don't let them stone me now. For the sake of your church, for the sake of my name, don't stone me now. And God gives him a little bit of that honor that he will receive fully at the end of time. (coughs) This is what it means in suffering to petition the Lord for your birthright, for your inheritance, for his promises. I can see by some of your faces, you're with me, but you're not there yet. Let me explain. Is health a gospel promise? Is health a promise that God gives his people? Yes. By his stripes, we are, say it with me, healed. Jesus was given a glorified and immortal body where there will be no longer sickness and every tear will be wiped away. And does his glorified, immortal body have any sickness in it whatsoever? No. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God who raised him up from the dead is within you. He will raise you up as well, and your body will be likened unto his his body. And one day, fully glorified, in the future, there will be no more sickness. Amen? Amen. That's our promise. That's our birthright. That's for us. That's our inheritance. He promised it. But in this life, Jesus says we will have affliction. But yet we can pray for a little bit of it. And we can go to him and say, you said you'd heal me. Would you give me a little bit of that now? I know I'm just a little heir. I'm not ready for my full inheritance yet. I know that these are the days of training. I know that I must walk through trial. But would you give me a little bit of that promise today? All right. right. He promises us the salvation of our children. He says, I will be God to you and to your children after you. And now, unless God comes to you and says, no, actually, your child is like Esau's, like Esau, then you go with the last thing that he said, and you believe that promise. And when your child is being a little rebel, you go to the Lord and you say, God, you said... When your child later in life apostatizes, you go to the Lord and you're not just praying randomly, you're petitioning him according to his promises. And you say, you said, Lord, you promised me my children. That is what I'm claiming right now. We don't know the secret things of God. We don't know what goes on in his mind, but we can petition him according to those promises. You see, it's not just a vague relationship we're in. It's a covenantal relationship. Does he promise us money, wealth? Yes, the meek shall inherit the earth. That means all the money. That means all the resources. He promises us that. And one day in the future, at the end of all things, we will receive that full inheritance. We'll be ready for it then. In this life, we're not ready for that. We can barely handle what he does give us. But we can pray. And when we pray, we should say, Lord, I'm in a financial difficulty. I'm under financial duress. And I know I'm, I haven't been a great steward I have not been totally faithful. And God might say, I forgive you. Here is another little token of your future inheritance. But be faithful to me. Be a good steward. Or he might say to you, how can I trust you with more since you haven't been faithful with little? Right? Paul prayed for healing. And what did God say? Not yet, Paul. No. Now, is Paul healed right now? He's healed. But God said to him, not right now, Paul, because I need you to be weak for your mission. But when we pray, this is what I'm trying to get you to see, is that we appeal to his promises. We don't just make up a random prayer list. Go to the word of God, look at the promises, and appeal to those. Amen? Jacob did this. It's in uh, Genesis 31, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Now listen, I know this is, I don't know what time it is, but listen, don't lose me here. Esau was about to kill him and to kill his family. He had divided his family into two camps so that at least half of them wouldn't be slaughtered. Can you imagine being there? Telling some of your kids to go that way and other kids to go that way so that at least some of them weren't murdered. And in that moment, in that great trial, he goes to the Lord and he says, Oh God of my father Abraham. Do you see what he's appealing to? He's appealing to the promises that were made to Abraham that are for Isaac and for him, Jacob. He saying, remember God. Remember God. You're the God of my fathers. You've given us a promise. Oh, Lord, covenantal name, Lord, who said to me, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. You said to me, go to the promised land, right? And I'll be good to you. He goes on in the passage. He acknowledges, I'm not worthy of any of the good things you give to me. It's all by grace. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of covenantal steadfast love and all the faithfulness to your covenant that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. In other words, he's saying, I came into Laban's land with just a stick and I'm leaving with all these families. I wasn't worthy of any of that. Like Job, he said, I came in with a stick. I guess I'll go out with a stick. But it's all of mercy. It's all of grace. He's saying, I'm not begging. I'm not asking you to save my family because I deserve it. I'm not asking you to save my family because I'm worthy. I'm not asking you to heal me of cancer or fix my financial problems because I'm worth it. Everything that I have is by grace. But you said. See, notice he says, I've become two camps. That's referring to the two camps of his family. He goes on, he says, please deliver me. He's petitioning the Lord according to the promise. But Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. Notice he mentions specifically the mothers with the children. Now, why would he mention that? Well, because we'll see. But you said, you said, you see, God made a promise in his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will surely do you good and make your offspring. You see, he asked for the women and the children because the promise was for the offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You said that my children will fill the earth. You said they will not be numbered. And yet here I am with my mother and my sons and my daughters being threatened by Esau. You said, you said, now I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. If you want me to leave here with a stick, that's how I came in. But I'm asking you. I'm asking you. This is how we pray in the midst of trial. This is how we pray In the midst of trial. So if you are going through a trial of dishonor, pray for honor. It's your inheritance. A trial of sickness, pray for health. It's your inheritance. Poverty, pray for financial assistance. It's your inheritance. If you have a prodigal child, pray for their salvation. It's your inheritance. And pray not with doubting. Do not be a double-minded man, but pray in faith. Now, David prayed this way and God answered him. As you well know, he was not stoned. Amen. That's good. And Jesus had this prayer answered as well. See, because when Jesus died on the cross, he went into the grave and he died as a nobody, as a failure. Imagine thinking that your Messiah, the king of the Jews, gets killed. The disciples were depressed. They thought the whole thing was off. He was a blasphemer. He was a rebel. He was a hater of God. That's how our savior went down in this life. That's how he went down. That's our lot in this life, very often. But on 3 days, after 3 days, when that sun broke up on the morning of the 3rd day, his accusers went silent. All those dancing on his grave, they stopped their celebrations. They knew it tables had been turned. Amen, Christ church, we could pray for what God has promised, and he will certainly answer. He said that a tyrant, an evil tyrant, would open the door to a nagging woman. How much more would a father, in a relationship with a little heir, answer his call? Amen? Let's all stand as the worship leaders come forward. Father, on behalf of anyone suffering and sickness we ask that you would heal them we acknowledge that total healing is not to the resurrection but we'd like a little bit of it now for those who are suffering financial duress we ask that you would help with that and for whatever trial we may or may soon go through would you teach us how to appeal to you and how to cling to you and to hold fast to your promises and faith? In Jesus Christ's name, amen.